Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. I have come tonight loaded for bear. I have so much potential material that we can look at tonight because we have kind of hit a juncture in the history of Israel. But before we do that, I was in uh, Chattanooga a couple weeks ago and I taught on justification from the book of Galatians. And I made the point that if anyone says, is Jesus and something else, that it has already become a warped gospel, that Paul was very clear that it's Jesus plus nothing. And so I said, almost haphazardly, like a throwaway comment, I said, I want a t-shirt that says Jesus plus nothing. And one of our erstwhile internet listeners... <laughs> was paying attention to my every word, and two days ago, I received this T-shirt. I like this T-shirt. So thank you, John. I appreciate that. One of the few times in my life that I have ever said, I wish I had something, and then I actually got it. I should have said... I wish I had a Lamborghini. I wish I had I wish I had a winning lottery ticket. I wish I but no, I wished for a t-shirt and doggone it, I got one. So that's good. Turn to 2 Kings. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. We will probably only get through the first half of this chapter tonight. It is a fairly long chapter. But it starts out with Hosea reigning over Israel, the southern kingdom, and then moves rather quickly into the fact that during the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria came and captured Samaria. And then we're told exactly why it is that God drove the Israelites into the Assyrian captivity, and that's the next portion of the chapter. And then about midway through the chapter, it goes into the cities of Israel being filled with Gentile strangers, but we're not even probably going to get to that tonight because there are so many things to say about the fact that God has sent the children of Israel into the Assyrian captivity. Now, I want to give you some sense of really how earth-shaking, how dramatic that is. We're talking about the early 700s A.D., 720, 730, right in that area. Roughly 1,400 years before Christ is the time of Moses. And prior to Moses, the children of Israel were in Egypt. And they were in Egypt because God had made a promise to Abraham even prior to that. Abraham believed God that he was going to have a child. When his initial expectation did not happen, he and Sarah did not have a child, he went into a tent with Sarah's handmaid. And so he had his first child, Ishmael, and then he had a child with Sarah, the child of promise. And God was very clear in saying, the promises that I've given you of this land and of posterity 
and of children as many as the sands of the sea or the stars of the heaven, all those promises are not going to come through Ishmael. I'll take care of Ishmael. I'll make him several kings and kingdoms. And God said, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. The Abrahamic covenant was repeated in toto to Isaac. So it moved from Abraham to Isaac. And then it moved to Isaac's two sons. God decided that he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And as a consequence, the Abrahamic covenant is again repeated with Jacob. So the Abrahamic covenant has moved from Abraham down to Isaac, down to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when Jacob is dying, he leans on his staff, he prophesies over all of his sons and talks about their posterity and what's going to happen in the days to come. And in the midst of those prophecies and promises, he says that it's through Judah in particular that Messiah is going to come, that Shiloh, a lawgiver, is going to come from Judah, even though he says that the promise, all of the land promise, all of the physicality of the Abrahamic covenant is going to end up with Ephraim. He even passes on the birthright blessing to Ephraim, who is Joseph's youngest son. This should all sound familiar to you. This is all the stuff we've read. Okay, so then Abraham has asked God, how do I know that what you've said is actually going to come true? Bad question, because God then tells him the next 400 years of human history to answer his question, and says to him, well, here's how you're going to know. You're going to die. And your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known. And they're going to serve there for 400 years. And they're going to become a mighty nation. And they're going to leave there a greater number of people and with more wealth than they went in. And so of the 12 children of Israel, the one Joseph is uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. They convince his dad that he's dead. Through a series of events in God's good providence, he ends up second only to Pharaoh himself. The book of Exodus begins with, there rose up a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, who was worried about how many Israelites now were in that area because Joseph brought all his brothers down, gave them the land of Goshen, and they were becoming a mighty nation. Well, because there were so many of them, Pharaoh decided to put them into captivity. So far, everything God promised Abraham is taking place. But part of the Abrahamic covenant is, after 400 years, I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring them back to this very place, this very land. And they're going to inhabit this land of milk and honey. This is an everlasting covenant that I've made between you and me, an unconditional covenant that God made with the offspring, the generations of Abraham. And so, sure enough, God raises up Moses. Now we're talking about, like I said, about 1,400 years before Christ. Moses, of course, delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt and for 40 years marches them through the wilderness till the first generation have died off. And so everybody who left Egypt under 20 years of age, those are the people who get to enter the promised land. But they're not allowed to enter the promised land under Moses. Moses gets to see the promised land, but he's not allowed to take the children of Israel into the promised land. That has to be done by Joshua. And so Joshua, the name Joshua, uh, Yahashua, shortened to Yahshua. The Greek cognate of that name is Iesus. The English word would be Jesus. 
And then an angel of the Lord comes about to Mary and says, you're going to name your child Jesus because he's going to deliver his people from their sins. And so Jesus becomes known as the Redeemer of Israel. But he is typified in Joshua, who successfully leads the children of Israel into the promised land. Now, when you go back and you read the book of Joshua, it says that when Joshua took them into the land, it was indeed a land of milk and honey, and that every good thing that God had promised the children of Israel came true. But as part of that deliverance from Egypt to the promised land, during that 40 years in the wilderness, they had to spend some time at Mount Sinai. And Moses was 40 days, 40 nights on Mount Sinai, and God formed another covenant. This is not like the covenant that he formed with Abraham, which was an unconditional covenant. He now forms a completely conditional covenant, a heavily conditional covenant. Here is my law. You're going to do my law. If you do my law, I'm going to make sure to take care of you. I'm going to drive the wild animals out of your land. I'm going to give you peace from all your enemies. You're going to have plenty to eat and drink. I'm just going to take care of you across the board if you do your part of the covenant, which, of course, they end up not doing. So, children of Israel, promised land, God gave them all the good promises he had given them, but they are still under this conditional covenant that they have to keep the law. And so, when we look into 2 Kings, we're going to find that they did not keep that law, and that's the reason that God, who, because of covenants he had made, delivered the children of Israel into the promised land, but just as faithfully, God took them out of the promised land because they broke the covenant. They didn't keep the rules of the law. Now, along the way, the children of Israel in the land of promise initially were essentially a theocracy. Essentially, they were doing everything according to God's law and God's standard. God did give them judges. That's the book of Judges. God did give them people to judge one another and decide what was right and wrong. And every time they had some incursion from their enemies, God would raise up a judge who would defend Israel. And like we saw all the way through the book of Judges, every time that God would deliver them, they were real adamant about keeping God's covenant for about a generation or two. And then a generation would rise up that didn't remember all that, and they would make the same old mistakes, and then God would have to punish them again and would bring some of their enemies on them. They'd cry out to God, and then he'd bring them someone like Deborah or someone like Samson or one of the many judges. So after a while, they were tired of being a theocracy and having judges, and so they said, via Samuel, we want a king. Samuel talks to God. They want a king. God says, well, obviously, they don't want me. They, they want a king. Okay, give them what they want. Give them a king. God chooses the king. Give them Saul, and Saul's chief uh, characteristic was that he was a head taller than everybody else. So that's good qualification for being a king. God even says he's going to take all the best women. He's going to take all the best food. He's going to tax you heavily. But if you want a king, hey, you get what you want. Here's your king. And then God raises up a man after God's own heart. He raises up David. So now we're talking about 1,000 BC, more or less. So keep that in mind because it's a mere 300 years from the time David, a man after God's own heart, is ruling over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. And then his son Solomon loves many strange women. So he ends up uh, worshiping the foreign gods, the Canaanite gods. And so then God says that he's going to take the kingdom away from Solomon. We're going to look at that a little bit tonight. 
and give it to Jeroboam, his servant. And so the northern ten tribes are separated from the southern tribe, Judah, and then Benjamin joins Judah and the Levites that served in the temple. So the southern tribes and the northern tribes are separated, and God continues giving the northern tribe kings, starting with his hand-picked choice of Jeroboam. And at this point, 300 years later, where God is taking them out of the land that he has promised them, out of the land that he has gone through all this trouble to give them, out of this land of milk and honey and protection from all of their surrounding enemies and from all the wild animals and plenty of food. And after giving them all that, he's taken them out, and God reaches all the way back to, this happened because of Jeroboam. You made Jeroboam your king. It's one of the things that God blames Israel for. You made Jeroboam your king, which is really interesting because, as we're going to see tonight, it's really God who made Jeroboam their king. God decided that Jeroboam was going to rule over the northern tribes. But because they accepted that and because they made Jeroboam king and then Jeroboam was concerned because his ten Nations over which he was going to be the king, he was worried that those people three times a year were going to go back to Jerusalem like the law says they have to do. And so he gave them new places of worship in Dan and Bethel. And he even gave them golden calves to worship and how to worship on the high places and in the groves and under every tree and all that just in order to give them a religious practice that was separate from the religious practice that was going on in Jerusalem. So they apostatize. They completely turn their back on God. And so now God, in keeping with his covenant, is now going to punish them and take them out of their land. That's what the beginning of this chapter is about. But it is a huge moment in time where God has said, I kept my covenant with you. I kept my covenant in giving you the land. But because of how you acted, I'm now going to take you out of that land because I'm keeping my covenant. My covenant includes, if you don't keep my law, I'm going to take you out of the land. And so now I'm going to do it. Also, God has told them very specifically, you have to keep Sabbaths. You have to keep Sabbaths every week, every seventh day of the week. Every Saturday is a Sabbath to you. You have to keep your seven-year Sabbaths when you let the land lay fallow. You have to let the land rest. Every six years, you can harvest the land and plow the land and grow. But on the sixth year, you have to make sure that you harvest enough to let the land just lay fallow. And then every 50 years, you're going to have a high Sabbath. You're going to have a, a day of restitution when, in fact, everything that was given by me to everybody in Israel, every land allotment, and even every financial bargain that you've made with each other is all going to be settled. We're going to wipe out all the debts because that's the time of Jubilee. And so these were set in stone, quite literally. These are things that God has said, you have to do this. Well, the Israelites very quickly stopped doing it. They weren't keeping their Sabbaths. They weren't spending time in the temple doing God's sacrifices the way God said to do it. And they weren't letting the land rest. And... Uh, and they weren't paying attention to when the Jubilees were coming, when they would make deals, strike deals with their neighbors, financial deals or land deals or slavery deals. They weren't paying attention to God's Jubilees. And so one of the reasons, and I find this fascinating, one of the reasons that God has taken Israel out of the land of promise is so that the land can enjoy its Sabbaths. 
Okay, you didn't let the land rest? Well, it's going to rest now. You're not even going to be in it. Any less plowing in it or growing in it or, or living on it, I'm going to take you out so that the land can enjoy its Sabbath. So, so God was real, real serious about this covenant that he made with Israel. Now, I said before, it's a conditional covenant. It's not a covenant that God ever said to the children of Israel, hey, I've got 613 really good ideas. What do you think? Are are you happy to go along with this? Instead, he imposed his covenant on Israel because they were his people, his chosen people, and he took them as a nation to be his people, and then he imposed this conditional covenant on them and said, I'm going to take care of you if you do it, and I'm going to punish you if you don't do it. And they didn't do it, and God, a covenant-keeping God, did punish them. Now, as we read through 2 Kings chapter 17, a great many of these would be really easy to apply to America and Europe and really the whole world in this modern day because we're doing all these same things that Israel did that God got so angry about. The anger of God was kindled. The fury of God was kindled against Israel for being exactly the way people are being today. And so I expect that if God was this angry, if he was this angry about it back then, I have to assume that a God that doesn't change is equally angry about it today. But I will try not to make too many uh, contemporary applications so that we can get lots of Bible tonight. Okay, so that should give you context. I mean, God is faithfully keeping the covenant. I'm stressing that because I have read so many things online that said that God had to do this to Israel because Israel had turned their back on him and that God, in taking them out of the land, was angry at them and permanently getting rid of them. Mm -hmm. That he was driving them not only out of the land on a temporary basis, but that God was driving them completely out of history. And that now that they're the lost tribes, that that they have been lost in among the nations of the Gentiles and they have no idea who they are, then they make the, the leaps to, and now those promises that belong to Israel belong to the church, and Jesus is the true Israel, and so if you're in Jesus, then you're the true Israel, and all the promises that God promised to Israel are fulfilled in the church. Except that, you're going to see it again tonight, these promises are so tangible, and they have so much to do with the land in the Middle East, of which Israel has never possessed Even under Joshua, they never possessed the totality of the land that God promised to Abraham. The unconditional covenant that God made to Abraham stretches all the way down to the Nile and all the way east to the Euphrates River. And the Israelites have never occupied all that land. But they have to if God keeps covenants. And so that's why I'm stressing that even in driving them out, All he was doing was keeping his covenant. Got it? it. Okay, I think I'm done introducing this. I I think we're ready to start reading. The first part of chapter 17 of 2 Kings says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel, the northern ten 
tribes, the northern ten kingdoms. So he became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So his kind of evil is really evil. It's really reaching a zenith at this point. Here's an example of how bad things had gotten. Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his servant and paid him tribute. Okay, let's talk about what the whole point of the king of Israel is. What is the king of Israel supposed to do? He's supposed to be a representative of God. He is supposed to be advancing the notion that God is protecting and keeping his chosen people, Israel, and he is supposed to be keeping the people of Israel in the way of God, in the law of God, after the statutes of God. And who does Hosea turn to? Not God, to Shalmaneser. So now the ruler of Israel is not even an Israelite. The one who has the authority in Israel is Shalmaneser, an Assyrian king. And Hosea has become a puppet king. But then, just like all men, because he thought he was really clever, he decided that he would make a deal with So, who was the king of Egypt, and that he would pay tribute to the king of Egypt so that the king of Egypt would help him throw off Assyria, and the king of Assyria got wind of that, especially because he didn't get his tribute. And so he's going to go ransack Israel. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So every year he's been paying tribute to Assyria. One year he doesn't do it, he sends it to Egypt. And so the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. The very fact that Shalmaneser has the authority, the power, to shut up Israel's king in prison gives you some idea where the power base is now. The power is all in Assyria. It has shifted. Israel is not even able to defend itself anymore. And then, verse 5, then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. Now, when we were looking at three of the minor prophets, when we took our break in the middle here of uh, 2 Kings, we saw that the prophets were all telling Israel that if they did not return to God, if they did not keep God's law, that in fact they were going to go into captivity, that they were going to be punished by God, that God was going to use a foreign king, and these foreign kings were going to encroach on Israel. So what's happening here when Shalmaneser comes into Samaria is precisely and exactly what God told Israel was going to happen. He's going to punish Israel by a foreign king. Now this is, like I said, the early 700s. In about 722 B.C., this Shalmaneser began to attack Then he died, and his successor was a guy named Sargon II. And it was Sargon II who completed the deportation of the Israelites and put them into slavery. So again, look at the big picture. We're in Egypt for 400 years. We're slaves in Egypt. 
God delivered us. God sends us a deliverer, Moses. And then he brings us via Joshua into a promised land that's going to be ours in perpetuity. It even includes Jerusalem, the place where God chose to place his name. The God of Israel has proven himself to be the only true God, the only living God. And all he expects is for Israel to stay true to him. And because they couldn't keep that up from the time of David until roughly 300 years later, he's put them back in slavery. They started out in slavery. They ended up in slavery. But in between, they got a taste of the land of milk and honey. They got a taste of that good land. They saw God keep every one of his promises. That's what Joshua says. Now, of course, you get to the book of Hebrews, and the writer of the book of Hebrews makes the comment that if Joshua had indeed given Israel permanent rest, then David wouldn't have later written about a day of rest coming. That the very fact that David had to again talk about a day of permanent rest proved that even though God gave them everything he had promised them under Joshua, it still wasn't a permanent rest. And so that is still held out for Israel that someday God is going to give them the promised rest that was part of the Abrahamic covenant. Have I lost anybody yet? I'm going real fast through bits and pieces of the Old Testament because I'm trying to coalesce all of this stuff so that you really get a feel for what the Old Testament is about, what it says. Up until this point, until 2 Kings 17, we've gone verse by verse all the way up to here. So I'm just reciting things that you hopefully remember from all these years of studying the Old Testament. Verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So now Israel is in captivity. So why? Why did this happen? Just so that you don't miss it, even though you could figure it out by reading everything up until this point, the writer of 2 Kings is now going to take the time to say, this is why Israel went back into slavery. This is what Israel did. So you don't miss it. Verse 7, now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced." So think about it from God's perspective for a moment. There were people living in the land of Canaan, and they had their worship, and they had their gods. And God has brought the children of Israel to Mount Sinai and started with a rule that says, you'll have no other gods before me. Second rule is, you'll make no graven images. And so on the basis of the words of that covenant, he takes them into the land of Israel and Israel successfully drives out all the people who live in Canaan. So it's very clear that God is not for those people. God is for Israel, and he's not for the Canaanites that are living in the land who Israel have conquered and driven out. 
So what does Israel do? They say, you know those gods that those conquered people had? They seem like good gods. Just to be safe, let's also worship them. And God started out with, don't do that. And right away, they began worshiping gods of Canaan. Verse 9, and the sons of Israel did things secretly that were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. And they set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. And they served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. So God was very clear about don't do it, and they, feeling self-sufficient, they, assuming that they could make up their own religious ideals, decided that they would go ahead and do it anyway, because after all, you know, God's for us. So we can play around on the edges of sin here. We can secretly do all sorts of things that God said not to do, because that is the presumptive nature of human beings. We think that we can play around on the edges of sin, and we'll be okay. Now, I know I said I'm not going to apply this to our contemporary day, but before you become too haughty too quickly and start thinking, well, yeah, but that was the Israelites back then in the Middle East doing that stuff. We don't do that now. Really? We have a TV show called American Idol. You mean we don't worship idols? We are still keeping holidays that you don't find anywhere in the Bible. We've even given them the name, Holy Days, Holidays. We're still keeping Easter, which the Bible doesn't know anything about other than it being the day that Christ rose, but rabbits and eggs, well, that's, that's the Ishtar feast. That's even the name that was given to that spring feast. And that spring Bacchanalia feast has now become part of the American economy. So you mean we're not chasing after foreign gods? I won't even get into the Christ mass. I mean, there are so many things that we are doing that we're just so comfortable with because they're just so common that we think, well, we're okay with God because we're not doing the things that the Israelites used to do. But there are still plenty of people all over the place who are doing secret things against God. Everywhere. And God was angry about it then, and he's angry about it now. So they served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Verse 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. That's why we took the time to go and look again at Micah and Hosea and Amos. That's why we took the time out to go and look, because God sent prophets to Israel at that particular juncture in time, and they all with one voice said the same thing. You've got to turn from your ways, or else God has to punish you, because that's what the covenant includes. And you're doing all these things that are going to bring the wrath of God down on you. 
So God uses that as one of the signs of the guilt of Israel. I even sent you prophets. I sent you people to warn you. I sent prophets in your midst who, who reminded you that you needed to come back to me, and still you didn't do it. I sent you prophets that said, no more idols, but you still did it. So God says again, you're guilty of that. Verse 14, however, they did not listen. They stiffened the necks like their fathers who did not believe the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he had made with their fathers and his warnings with which he had warned them. And they followed vanity and they became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. And they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves and made an Asherah and worshiped all the host of heaven and they served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and they practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And when he had torn Israel from the house of David, the house of David's the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, when he had torn Israel, the northern tribes, from the house of David, look at the next part, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat their king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. And the sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight. As he spoke through all his servants, the prophets, so Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Now, that was until this day when the writer of Second Kings was writing. But we can say, until this day, even now, the northern tribes have not returned to Canaan. They've gone into the land of Assyria, and then they've disappeared into the headways of the Caucasus Mountains and spread out to this very day. Now, let's go back and take a closer look at verse 21, because this is where we get to start getting real theological. And this is the kind of stuff that is very hard to wrap your head around. By the time we get done tonight, uh, you'll have to duct tape your head closed because it's, it's really hard to imagine this. Now, look, God is holding Israel guilty for the fact that they made Jeroboam their king. Turn back to 1 Kings for a moment. 1 Kings 11. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 11. Because this is what happened that led to Jeroboam being their king. Look at verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 11 
A first king says, so the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this thing, that's loving many strange women, and so the following foreign gods, introducing foreign worship into Israel, because you've done this thing, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. You know, here God is taking responsibility for the fact that he is going to take the northern tribes of Israel and give them to the servant of Solomon. Nevertheless, says verse 12, nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David, but I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David. Remember, he had an unconditional covenant going on with David, the Davidic covenant, that there was always going to be a descendant of David sitting on the throne ruling over Israel. And so, for the sake of that covenant, I'm going to give you Judah and the son of David, the son of Solomon, still going to sit on the throne for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now, go down to verse, let's start at 29. Look at verse 29. Here's how it happened. Let's not start there. Start at verse 26. Okay, Genesis 1.1. And we're going to move forward to it. Okay, never mind. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Okay, we're being introduced to Jeroboam. He was an Ephraimite of Zeradah. He was Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow. Also, he rebelled against the king. Solomon had become so unpopular at this point, and Solomon had heavily taxed the people, and then Solomon's son took over the rule. And when Solomon's son took over the rule, he was like, man, you think, you're, you think my father was hard on you? I am really going to be hard on you. And so there were rebellions against the king, including this particular man, Jeroboam. So then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. Verse 27. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built up Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Now the man, Jeroboam, was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw the young man was industrious, he had appointed him over all the forced labor in the house of Joseph. And it came about at that time when Jeroboam went out to Jerusalem that a prophet, Ahijah the Shilonite, found him on the road, and now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. And then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes. Who did it? God did it. It's God who's the actor. It's God who made Jeroboam king. Jeroboam's just a mighty man serving under the king. He's a servant of the king. And it is God who decided that Jeroboam is going to be the king of the northern tribes. And then he went on to say, verse 32, but he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and they have worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, 
and Chamash, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, nor have they done what is right in my sight, and neither are they observing my statutes or my ordinances as my father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him a ruler all of his days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes, but I will take the kingdom from his son's hands, and I will give it to you, even ten tribes. Okay, so now back to Second Kings. It is God who has made Jeroboam the king of the northern tribes. Do you think that God knew what Jeroboam was going to be like? Yes. This is the same God who said, okay, they want a king, I'll give them Saul. Now let me tell you what Saul is going to be like. God knows what these people are going to be like and what's going to happen in Israel. And so God knows that Jeroboam is going to be a ruinous king for the northern kingdoms. And the kingship, as we've seen through First and Second Kings, the kingship in the northern tribes does not follow a succession, a family line, the way that we see the kings in Judah following after David's house. We see several different houses and several different kings who become kings of various different lineages in the northern kingdom. Do you think that God knew that? Well, yes. And so God led Israel into the very situation He's blaming them for. And that's hard. But it doesn't happen just once. It happens over and over again in this situation. All I'm trying to prove is, I'll state it plainly, God is the God of history. And God knows the history of the world in advance. And God has determined what that history is going to be. And he's going to bring it about the way that he has planned it, and the way he, that he has intended it. God is absolutely sovereign in all things, and he holds people guilty, which is hard to believe. Here, let's look at it again. Turn to the book of Isaiah. I told you last week that we were going to get to Isaiah 10 eventually. So let's look at Isaiah 10. Because the exact same theological thing is going to happen here. But Isaiah 10 is about the Assyrian captivity. Israel going into Assyria. So this is the exact juncture of what we're looking at in 2 Kings. Now in chapter 9, God has said that Israel is wrong. That Israel is, is going to be uh, punished for the things that they've done. And yet in the middle of saying that these things are going to fall out to Israel, there's also a promise that there's going to be a redeemer given to Israel. And that's where we get chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, which is what this is all about, the succession of kings, the succession of kings under the Davidic covenant, or after Jeroboam and the evil kings, he now says... And the government's going to be on his shoulders. He's my ultimate king. And his name will be called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Look at the next verse. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom. God's still keeping the Davidic covenant. God has promised that there's going to be a descendant of David sitting on David's throne, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that hasn't happened since Solomon, but that's the covenant that God has made. So that still has to happen somewhere. How's it going to happen? It's going to happen in this one. This one who is God. This one who is a child born and a son given. The government's going to finally be on his shoulders. And of his kingdom and his rulership and his government, there's going to be no end. It's an eternal kingship that he's ultimately going to have. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. And on the throne of David and over David's kingdom. Okay, what's David's kingdom? All 12 tribes. So you've got these northern 10 tribes and they've disappeared to history. You've still got the Judahites. You can still find a Jew. But go find me a Reubenite. It's hard to find a Reuben sandwich. Go find, go find someone who's a descendant of Issachar and knows it. And you can't find these folks anymore. A Danite? We don't know. Judahite, yes. And yet the promise is that Jesus is going to be the ultimate king who is going to rule on the throne of David over the kingdom of David. Why? To establish it. Why does it have to be established? Because it's been broken up. It has to be established. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And I love the last line, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God will do this. He just hasn't done it yet. Now, it's worth saying at this point, I believe that Jesus is coming back. It's been 2,000 years, give or take, since he left. But I live with the constant expectation that he's coming back. The people who don't believe he's coming back, perfectly in line with what Peter predicted, the people who don't think he's coming back say, well, it's been a long time. It's been 2,000 years. Where is he? In fact, show me your God. God was silent for 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the book of Matthew. There's 400 years in there, the intertestamental period when there were no prophets in Israel. God wasn't speaking, and they thought, well, God's done with us. He's abandoned us. And then God sends them Jesus, and it all starts again. Well, okay, at this moment in time, God's quiet again doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. It just means that in his own divine sovereignty, he has chosen at this moment to kind of leave human beings to their devices. But he's still in control of human history. He's still holding people responsible. He's still saying that they're guilty. Now, the reason I brought up it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come back is that that 2,000-year gap hasn't changed my expectation. I still think he's going to be back. Why? Because God said it. Time doesn't matter. The fact that it's been 2,000 years doesn't matter. God said it. I believe it. It's going to happen. No, God said it. It's going to happen, whether I believe it or not. Okay, so God said that he's going to reestablish national Israel with Jesus as their king. Hasn't happened yet. Is it going to happen? Yeah. Hasn't happened for some 2,700 years, going back to the Assyrian captivity. But God said, the same way I drove you out of your land, I'm going to bring you back to your land. I'm going to bring all 12 tribes, and Jesus is going to sit on the throne, David's greater son, and rule over Israel. That's why it's important that the genealogies in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke trace Jesus back to David. 
so that you see that he's the greater son of David. And so, I've still got a lot to go. I've got a lot of talking to do still. And so God is in charge of these things. God has said these things. He's promised these things. So far in history, he has done everything he said he was going to do. I'm going to give you a people. They're going to be numerous like the stars or like the sand. That happened. I'm going to bring them into Egypt. Okay, that happened. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt and bring them to this land. Okay, that happened. And, uh, and then if they don't keep my law, I'm going to take them out of the land. Okay, that happened. So far, God's got a thousand batting average going. And that happened. Again, everything God has said. Absolutely. And we can look at so many prophecies of the coming of Jesus. And that happened. And so I say everything else God has promised concerning Israel also has to happen. The fact that it hasn't yet doesn't change it. Okay, that was all sort of parenthetical because I want to look at chapter 10. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights. Does any of that sound familiar? I don't have to apply that. And they rob the poor people of their rights in order that widows may be their spoil and so that they may plunder the orphans. Now, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the day of devastation, which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? The point being, it's God that's doing this to you. You can't flee to God for help. He's doing it to you. And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives and fall among the slain. And in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still outstretched. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Okay, this helps us understand the attitude of God. God has used Assyria, the kings of Assyria, in order to punish the northern tribes of Israel. So it's God who's in charge of the kings of Assyria, which is why I say God's in charge of human history on planet Earth. He has his chosen people. He has his elect people. He has his chosen nations. But he's in charge sovereignly of the whole world. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation, against Israel. And I commission it, Assyria, against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it, Assyria, does not so intend. Assyria doesn't know this is God doing this. Assyria doesn't realize that they're in God's hand doing what God intended. They're just out there conquering. They're just out there doing what empires do. We're empire building. So we're going to go after Israel without understanding that it is God who is using us to punish Israel. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart. But rather, it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. That's what I said. Its intention is to empire build. For it says, are not my princes all like kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad? And isn't Samaria like Damascus? These are cities that they have crushed 
And so they're saying, Samaria is going to be like Damascus. We've already taken Damascus. We've taken the Syrians. We're going to conquer Israel the same way. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and to all her images, just as I have done to Samaria and to all her idols? The point being that the kings of Samaria at this point are boasting about the, the ease with which they have conquered Samaria. Look at us go. We have conquered cities of Samaria, and we have even taken the idols of Samaria. We are all high and mighty, and so God says this to them. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Wait! Those are the people you used to punish your people. And now you're going to punish the people who punished your people for the haughtiness with which they punished your people. Can you understand that? I mean, how do you wrap that around your theology? How are you going to grab a God that's, that's that sovereign, who can not only use arrogant, boastful nations in order to accomplish his will, he can then turn around and punish those very nations for doing the very thing he caused them to do. And that's what this says. For he, Assyria, has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. For I have understanding and I have removed the boundaries of the people and I have plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants and my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth and there is none that have flapped its wings or opened its beak or chirped. And then listen to God talk to him. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Think about that phrase. When you hammer a nail, does the hammer get to go, look at me, look at me go? No, the hammer is only useful in the hand of the person doing the hammering. So it is God who has used Assyria to punish Israel. And he says, is the axe going to boast against the one who chops with it? Is the saw going to exalt itself over the one who saws with it? Well, that would be like a club wielding those who lift it. That'd be like the tail wagging the dog. That would be like the hammer saying, I'm in control of the person who uses me to hammer. It would be like the rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors. And under his glory, he will send a fire that will be kindled like a burning flame. And the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour Assyria's thorns and briars in a single day. And he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. God's going to destroy Assyria. Okay, let's see if that happened in human history. Where's Assyria? <laughs> it's become other nations now, hasn't it? 
Yeah, it's got other kings now, doesn't it? It's got other leaders. As a people group, are they called Assyrians anymore? No. No, no, they're not. Because God wasted that nation. Why did he do it? Because of the haughtiness of the way that they punished Israel. And he used them to punish Israel. Wait, we're not done. Okay, turn to Romans 9. Because this is a concept that carries into the New Testament and is part of Pauline theology. And I think it is stories like the one we just read that led Paul to thinking about this very theology and asking these kinds of questions. Chapter 9 talks about how God has chosen one and hated another. Through Isaac, your descendants will be called. At this time, I will come and Sarah is going to have a son and there's going to be twins and I'm going to choose the younger over the older. Jacob, I've loved. Esau, have I hated. And what are we going to say then? That there is no justice with God? Well, may it never be. Because he already said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. It depends on God who shows mercy. And then he goes and talks about Pharaoh for a while. And then he describes it in such a way. God's destruction of Egypt and destruction of Pharaoh and all the armies and God saying things like I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy and on whom I will I'll harden and then verse 19 asks this question you will say to me then the Pauline theology will lead you to ask this question if you haven't asked this question you don't understand Paul yet Paul's question is so why does he still find fault for who resisted his will? Okay, so no one's resisted the will of God. Everybody ends up doing what God determined they were going to do. He declared the end from the beginning. God is in charge of his universe. But if that's the fact, if it is God who decided that people were going to be a certain way and then chose certain people for himself, how can he possibly find fault with people who only did what they were foreordained to do. Doesn't that sound like a good question? I mean, that's a good philosophical question that you could banter about for a long time. And you can argue about the character and the nature of God. And you can talk about whether God's the author of sin. And you can talk about free will and whether people are foreordained to do things or whether they have a willfulness and so God is punishing their will. What is Paul's answer to this question? When you bring up the question, well then how is that fair? Paul's answer is, who are you? You don't get to talk back to God. Remember what God said? Is the axe going to boast against the one who uses it? I use you. I'm the God over everybody. I choose people. I choose people groups. I chose nations. I raised up some nations and I brought down other nations. I'm in charge of this world. And who are you to stand up on your hind legs and yell at me as if you will demand and I will give you an answer? It's never going to work that way. So look at what Paul says. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? In other words, the declaration is God's like this. This is what God does. God raises up a king like Jeroboam and then tells Israel they were wrong to make Jeroboam their king. 
God raises up Assyria, makes them a mighty army, and then uses them as his battering ram to punish his people Israel because they didn't keep his law. And then he punishes Assyria for the way that they have, in their haughtiness, come down on Israel. And the answer to, how is that fair? If everybody is doing what God wants them to do, how does he judge anybody? The answer is, because that's what God's like. And you don't get to say, I don't like what God's like. Because the other part of that equation is if that's what God is like and he's in complete charge and he knows the end from the beginning and he uses people to bring about his foreordained end, well then in the midst of that he also chose some people and he also elected some people and he also forgave some people. And then someone will stand up and say, that's not fair. And the answer is, yeah, but that's what God's like. And we see it time and time and time again. And you, oh man, are not welcome to come into God's presence as if you're going to put God on trial. As if you're going to say, I'll be the judge of whether you're being fair or not. God does not give an answer to human beings for the way he is. You got that? And that theology goes all the way through the Bible. I have other examples. There are plenty of other examples. But since we're talking about Assyria, this is the most obvious one. Yeah. Thank God he shows us what he's like. Otherwise, we're just bumping into the walls. Yes. Thoroughly confused. Yes. And isn't the whole world bumping into the walls and thoroughly confused? Okay, well, we're not done yet. I know it's, it's getting late, but we're still not done. There's still something more to do yet tonight. All right, let's go. <laughs> All right, one more passage. Find the prophet Zechariah. Turn to Zechariah 10. Zechariah 9, starting at verse 11, there's the promise of the deliverance of Judah and Ephraim, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But then starting in chapter 10, starting at verse 1, everybody there? Still hear pages flipping. I don't hear Micah flipping pages, but that's because he has an electronic Bible. <laughs> and he's tapping to that verse. Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in their fields of each man. For the teraphim speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain, and therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock. And who is his flock? The house of Judah. And will make of them like his majestic horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone. You think that's a messianic phrase? From Judah's going to come the cornerstone. Jesus was the chief cornerstone, rejected by the Jews, and yet beloved, unique. From them, from the Jews is going to come the cornerstone. From them is going to come the tent peg. From them, the bow of battle. And from them, every ruler, all of them together. 
and they will be as mighty men treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets of battle, and they will fight for the Lord will be with them, and the riders on horses will be put to shame. Look at verse 6. This is why we went to this passage, and I shall strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Who's the house of Joseph? Remember earlier I said Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were brought before their grandfather, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And Jacob wittingly crossed his hands and he put the birthright promise on Ephraim. And Ephraim became the chief tribe in the northern kingdom so that the northern kingdom was sometimes known by the nickname of Ephraim and Mount Ephraim. And so all the collective 12 tribes of the north under the headship of Ephraim are called sometimes the nickname the tribes of Joseph. And God here says he is going to strengthen the house of Judah and he's going to save the house of Joseph. Well, they need saving. They're scattered among the Gentiles. They're scattered all over the world. They need to be restored. Keep reading. And I shall bring them back because I have had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them. What were we reading in 2 Kings? God said repeatedly, I've put them out of their land. I've rejected them. And here is God saying, I am going to make it as though I had not rejected them. He's going to bring them back into their land. Why? For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. God has made an everlasting covenant, unconditional, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendants thereof. And God is going to keep that covenant despite what human history looks like, despite all the things that God had to put them through in keeping with the covenant that they broke. He had to punish them and take them out of the land and afflict them, but he also equally promises them. How many times have you heard me say this? All the prophets of God speak with one unified voice. They all say the same thing. They all say God is going to punish Israel and Judah, and God is going to restore them, and God's going to bring all 12 tribes back to their land, and God is going to put David's greater son on the throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the 12 tribes. That's what all the prophets say. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's what the Old Testament rings with. That's the, the thread that's woven all the way through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. And what it all means collectively is the church is Israel. That's wrong. That's wrong. It's not what it means. No, clearly it means that God knows who Israel is and has made promises and covenants to Israel which he will keep. Because I have had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them, and Ephraim will be like a mighty man. That's the northern kingdom. They're going to be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. And indeed, their children will see it and be glad, and their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them to gather them together, for I have redeemed them and they will be as numerous as they were before when I scatter them among the Goyam, among the Gentiles, among the peoples. When they're in that scattered condition, they will remember me in those far countries, and they and their children will live and come back. 
and I will bring them back from the land of Egypt, and I will gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. And he will pass through the sea of distress, and he will strike the waves in the sea, so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up, and the pride of Assyria will be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt will depart. And I shall strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. Okay, so that's the end of the story of the Assyrian captivity. In 2 Kings, we saw God say, I'm sending you into the Assyrian captivity. But the promise is held out by all the prophets that God is not going to forget Israel. God is a covenant-keeping God. If God does not do this for Israel, everything we've been talking about tonight, if God does not do that, you can have no confidence whatsoever that he'll save you. Because he's a God who says things and doesn't do it. He's a God who just lies willy-nilly and says, I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to establish you. Oh, never mind. And they'll, be, they'll need more space because there'll be more of them. Absolutely. And the promise, like I said, of the Abrahamic covenant is there will be more space. So that's the big story of the Assyrian captivity. At that point in 2 Kings, the attention goes to Judah because now we know where the northern tribes are. We've seen the whole succession of the kings of the northern tribes, and uh, then we've seen the downfall of those kings and the downfall of those ten family groups. They have been taken into the Assyrian captivity, and Second Kings pays attention from this point forward to Judah, and then is going to culminate in Judah being taken into the Babylonian captivity. That's where we're at. Got it? That's fun, isn't it? I like that stuff. I think the Bible is exceedingly clear on the subject. And any theology that comes to a different conclusion or comes to a church Israel replacement conclusion or anything like that has to work extra biblically to get there. Uh, I just agree with what the Bible says. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.